It was a big day for labor unions. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. After weeks of protests from staffers, the Chicago Reader is now free to transfer to nonprofit status. That's because Len Goodman, the paper's co-owner, who stalled the process, is stepping down. And Starbucks employees in Cary and Peoria voted to form a union, becoming the first to do so in Illinois. Plus, graduate teaching assistants and officials at the University of Illinois at Chicago have reached a tentative agreement, ending a week-long strike. The union won wage increases and a new contract. So today we thought we would check in with a few of these labor organizers to hear about their efforts and what's next for them. Let's start with some folks from the Reader Union. Joining us now is staff writer Katie Prout. Katie, welcome to Reset. Thank you so much. And audience engagement manager Yasmin Zakaria Mikhail. Hi, Yasmin. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'll start with you, Katie. How are you feeling? Big change since oh, we last man. spoke. I'm feeling so happy, um, really, really happy, really relieved, tremendously proud of uh, the union and my fellow union siblings uh, for what we were able to accomplish together. What's the mood like for you and your colleagues, Yasmin? It's so joyous, but we are also still working through some frustrations, and we're very happy to keep mobilizing together, especially since we have a bargaining contract situation to be pushing through as well. Um, we're just so happy that we were able to come together and save the reader. Talk to us about those frustrations, Yasmin. What concerns still remain? A lot of the staff has been overworked for the last few months, just weathering this storm and internally frustrated with some of um, resources that we haven't been in able to access because of the freeze we were facing. Katie, th this has been a long road, and I can hear the the, the mix of you know joy and 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 um, and frustration in in both your voices here. The the reader union's been in limbo since December. That's that's a long time. So for those listeners who might not be up to speed, can you just remind us how it started? Yeah, one of uh, our co-owners of the for-profit side of the uh, reader, um, Len Goodman, after the reader published a column of his that had errors in it that needed to be fact-checked and corrected, um, uh, really didn't like that we were going to do that, and so halted the sale of the paper from the for-profit for profit, uh, version that we were going to phase out anyway uh, mm -hmm. to the nonprofit, which allows us to be much more independent and no longer, you know, uh, dependent on a billionaire co-owner or two um, to make us uh, viable. So it's been a stalemate uh, for the last few months. And as of yesterday, uh, Len has decided to sign the papers and release us. And uh, we couldn't be happier. Now we get to focus on our actual job. Yeah, Len Goodman has stepped aside. Several board members are resigning as well. Do you feel like you got what you wanted there, Yasmin? I believe so, because this frees us up to become a nonprofit and actually access over $300,000 that has just been sitting on the sideline for the reader. Yeah. What really mobilized us is two weeks ago, we were informed that we could be getting our final paycheck last Friday and protesting at Len's house was the next thing that we needed to do to really show him how much the staff was suffering while still doing our jobs and fighting for them. I can't imagine how that must have felt, Yasmin, wondering if that was it, if that was going to be, like you said, your last paycheck. 
Absolutely. And I'd like to name that a lot of staffers have multiple jobs um, because our salaries are actually pretty low and not at the same compensation as some of our colleagues. So even so, it was a part-time job mobilizing with the union and Mm -hmm. also trying to handle things outside of our daily tasks at the reader. Is there a lesson in all of this, Katie? Oh, man. What a great question. Um, Right now, I think I was talking with another friend yesterday uh, about the power and the gratitude I feel towards being um, in a union. Uh, It's my first time. Uh, I come from a family of union members and other trades, but uh, the strength and the solidarity and the feeling of less, you know, less being alone Mm -hmm. um, is so overwhelming and really gives me a surge of hope for what the paper can accomplish, what we can accomplish together, both as, you know, all as workers um, for our own Uh, needs in the workplace, but also what the paper can do now, what we can do as colleagues and writers and editors uh, to get the coverage that the city needs. You know, WBEZ recently acquired the Chicago Sun-Times, right, and announced Mm -hmm. it would be transitioning um, the paper, I mean, to a nonprofit status. I'm wondering if you view your win at the Reader as sort of part of a larger trend in journalism. Yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah. You know, I know that we're not the first newsroom to do this. Um, I think it's one of, as people are trying to, you know, become more innovative to how to, how to make outlets stay alive. Um, it seems like a track that more and more are turning to, and I hope it works out for all of us. Yasmin, before I, I let you go, tell us what's next for the for the union. Or what do you hope that transferring to nonprofit is going to do now for the paper? For sure. Um, For us as a union, again, we're going to continue mobilizing. We still need to debrief our wins and celebrate, um, but also have an action plan towards what are the things we do want to bring towards management when we do get to that bargaining table. That is Yasmin Zakaria Mikhail and Katie Prout from the Chicago Reader Union. Thank you both. Let's turn now to the point person for another unionization effort. That's Michael Mueller. He's a shift lead at a Starbucks in North Suburban Cary, and he joins us now on the line. Welcome, Michael. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Thank you for, for making the time. Tell us the mood right now for, for you and for your coworkers. How are you all feeling? Elation and relief. We knew we were going to win weeks ago. Uh, we knew I, I, had a, I had the vote count pretty well pegged. Um, but you know, what made you, you so confident? Know. What's that? What made you so confident? I talked to every single one of my partners. I made sure every single vote when people, uh, I called them, made sure they got their votes, their, their envelopes, their ballots. I made sure they got their ballots in the mail. I, I knew how many people we had signed union cards before we, uh, filed mm-hmm. we had an overwhelming majority before then to win. I mean, really it should have been, a, a, a joy silk situation where we should have been recognized, but obviously uh, corporate America doesn't recognize unions, so we had to fight. Take us back to when the effort started, Michael. How long have you been working on it? Unionization, we, we, once Buffalo, uh, for anybody who isn't up to speed on what's going on with Starbucks, there were three stores in Buffalo that filed, um, and they had their elections in December. And once the first one won, I think it was December 6th, things, people started kind of talking, and we would joke on the floor like, oh, when we're, when we're going to unionize, and you know, but then it really started kind of picking up steam in mid-January. We all kind of started talking and realizing that this is something that we could do. Uh, for a long time, especially in the food service industry or in the retail sector, uh, you're very terrified. You're terrified to even mention it because while they technically can't fire you for 
talking about unions, mm-hmm. they will find a reason, whether it's ticky-tack things like dress code or if you're five minutes late or whatever it is to get rid of somebody who's agitating. So, so we, did you feel intimidated? No, we just, we knew going in we couldn't talk on the floor. We couldn't talk. We, we, our manager couldn't know. Um, we had to keep things private. We wound up setting up a group text chain with everybody who was a yes mm-hmm. because you, you would ask in person first because that way you had plausible deniability if somebody said no or somebody was against it. You don't have anything in writing. So we would start by talking face-to-face, and once we got enough people, we started a group text chain, and we started really getting organized, and then we made the phone call to or uh, the email to Workers United, and we started really getting putting putting things together, and it started getting serious. Would you say the pandemic was a wake-up call for you and your coworkers? I think it was a wake-up call for the entire industry. Before the pandemic, if you want to look back, what is it, three years now, which is crazy to think that, Yeah, we were called, uh, you know, um, unskilled labor is what people in our, my profession or people at Starbucks or McDonald's or, you know, uh, any of the fast ch- chain restaurants or any, anybody kind of in that industry were, were unskilled labor, which I look at it as we're a vast pool of labor that is easily replaceable and we should just be thankful for what we got. Right. And for a long time, that's what, that's what everybody who worked there thought there, you wouldn't speak of unions because you could get fired and they could easily replace you. And then the pandemic happened and we went from being unskilled labor to essential workers. Right. right. Well, if I'm an essential worker, now you better start treating me like it. Hmm. And once that toothpaste left the tube, there's no putting it back in anymore. We're now essential workers. And it's not easy to hire people for our place. I mean, my store is looking for, 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 for hiring. Every store in the district, places are looking to hire. Nobody wants to work this job. It's not that we're doing the job that anybody can do. We're doing the job that, like, nobody wants to do. So what's next for you and, and for your coworkers, Michael? Well, we literally just won 24 hours ago. Like, I mean. We, we, yeah, we, we became <laughs> the first Starbucks union in the state of Illinois 24 hours ago. So... Obviously, what's next is the, the election has to get certified, which shouldn't be a problem. We won 17 to 4. Certification usually takes about five to seven days, at which point we will um, petition to start negotiating a contract. We would love to negotiate with our district manager and our regional manager, but um, from the two stores that are currently negotiating, there's two stores in Buffalo, uh, they are negotiating with uh, a lawyer from the law firm of Littler Mendelssohn, uh, one of the um, highest powered and most uh, prestigious anti-union law firms in the country. Yeah. Starbucks has retained, I think, 30 of their lawyers. Odds are it's going to be us sitting down with a lawyer, probably virtual weeks. I can't imagine they're going to fly somebody out from wherever they're from to sit down with, you know, a couple people from Cary, Illinois. Right. But uh, it will be it will be that uh, a first contract in uh, on average in the United States takes 409 days. Wow. To get. 409 days, that's uh, across any industry. So we're looking at over a year before we probably get a contract. But um, we waited a long time for this, yeah. and a year goes by in the blink of an eye, I'll tell this you that. This is just I mean, the beginning. I mean, we're, it's 2022, and it, just, it still feels like 2020 because we lost two years to a pandemic. Yeah. So a year, a year will go by fairly quickly. We are excited. There are more stores on the way. Uh, we won yesterday, then Peoria won. There are uh, the store in LaGrange has an election, I think, coming up in May. Right. There are a bunch of Chicago stores that filed before us. They filed for their union, their, their election before us. But something funny happened. So Starbucks has, if, if you have time, Starbucks has 
use the the process of uh, going to the National Labor Relations Board and saying that single individual stores should not be able to unionize. It should be more of a district-wide or market-wide mm-hmm. to kind of try to dilute the vote. So that's why the Chicago stores have been held up for some reason that is still unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to Workers United, unbeknownst to everybody. Starbucks decided to settle with us on the day of our hearing. They settled with us in Peoria and they said, okay, ballots will go out April 5th, April 6th, and you'll get, and they have to be counted by April 25th. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a National Labor Relations Board hearing. So don't know why. We were one of, I think, a handful of stores that that's happened to out of the 120 plus wow. that have filed so far nationwide. Well, we'll have to leave it there. That is Michael Mueller, labor organizer and shift lead at Starbucks in Cary, Illinois. Thank you for talking with us, Michael. So is this recent wave of labor victories part of a larger trend toward workers' rights? Joining us now to provide some insight is Bob Bruno, director of the Labor Education Program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Professor Bruno, welcome to Reset. It's nice to be with you today. Thank you. And also with us is Peter Berg, director of the School of Human Resources and Labor Relations at Michigan State University. Hi, Professor Berg. Good to have you on. Hello. Professor Bruno, I'll start with you. Can you tell us about what we're seeing right now in Illinois? Because we just saw some pretty big union agreements go down. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think what you're seeing in Illinois is reflective of what's happening uh, across the country, and and that is that uh, for about four decades, uh, uh, workers um, have been struggling uh, to find a voice in the workplace and and to improve the quality uh, of the work uh, that they desire to do, uh, and particularly in places like Illinois, which has a higher union density than the national average, a combination of factors uh, have really encouraged, incentivized, and inspired workers uh, to assert uh, their voice in a collective way. Uh, And that's happening both in unionized sectors um, and it's happening with um, unrepresented workers who are, are showing a, uh, an increased interest in unionization. Um, and that takes, you know, this is taking different forms. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a walkout, it's a strike. Sometimes yeah. it's demonstrations and it's boycotts. And, uh, and collectively, it is a, um, it is a, a modern version of strong worker resistance. And, and it's been very successful, yeah. as you noted in the examples that you've been talking about. And you, you just said, Professor, uh, Illinois has got a, a higher, a stronger union density. Mm-hmm. Density, yeah. Higher yeah. percentage of Tell me more about workers. that. Yeah, yeah, than the national average. Um, so um, amongst the 50 states, uh, Illinois is considered a, a top tier union state, meaning the number of people who are both unionized and covered under collective uh, bargaining uh, agreements, uh, and I believe it's actually the third uh, highest uh, uh, third highest number of, uh, of union members. And it was a long history, of course, starting with, uh, with Chicago, um, unionization going back to the industrial uh, relations movement, the industrial uh, movement in the latter part of the 19th century, and mm-hmm. a number of national unions actually have their very first chapters, their very first locals uh, that are in Chicago, really, kind of uh, greater than in, in New York City. Uh, 
So the mixture of work, the historical legacy of immigrants coming uh, to Chicago um, has really contributed to a sub- substantial union culture yeah. uh, in the state. Professor Berg, as we're zooming out here and looking across the country, give us some more perspective. What else is happening around the country and how are company owners responding to this growing movement of unions? Um, well, I think you've, you know, there's some famous cases with Amazon, Staten Island, and, and workers winning representation there in an election. And we're seeing activity across the board in other industries as well for union organizing drives. And I think what it reflects is a growing frustration with people and their working conditions. They've had years of experiencing some inequality and now wanting to work under different conditions and using their labor power, the fact that labor demand exceeds labor supply, the labor market is tight, and the workers are in a more powerful position, and they're exercising that power, and we're seeing that through union organizing drives as one form of that. Yeah, you, you brought up Amazon, which, you know, earlier this month, Professor Berg, those employees voted to unionize in New York. Already a second warehouse is voting on whether to join the new union. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think there's a strategy to look at Amazon as a huge employer and to try to organize them to create an opportunity for union expansion there. You asked me how employers are responding. I think employers typically have responded to unionization with using a toolbox that is in that they have access to to resist and to put together captive audience speeches to hire law firms that will advise on how to resist unionization and to be somewhat aggressive with workers about saying all the negative things they would say about unionization. Mm-hmm. So employers are really over time through court decisions have been able to increase their toolbox of resistance, and they've used that to great effect. What we're seeing now is some breakthrough of that given workers' position in the labor market, and that's temporary. It won't always be like that. So I think workers are using that labor power now to increase some of their activity. It's like now or never, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, now is the time to strike, and we're seeing workers do it. But it's also been built up over time that for – the, you know, the pandemic made people realize in lots of ways, do I really want this job? Do I want to work in this job or not? You've heard of the great resignation, people leaving the labor force mm-hmm. to focus more on their family or other things. It's a reflection of a dissatisfaction with the work or a recognition of wanting different things out of the work experience, either more flexibility or better pay that's rising or more opportunities. And now saying, well, I'm going to use the labor power I have to get some of those things. That right. I want. Uh, Professor Bruno, let's talk more about Starbucks. We just heard from a barista who helped organize a union election. Do you expect to see one Illinois Starbucks after another basically start to unionize? I do. Uh, I do. Uh, it's a remarkable uh, campaign. Wherever there's been a, a drive, there's been strong union interest there, and they're racking up uh, win after win uh, from from Arizona uh, to, and I think, uh, Chicago. Uh, and they bring a distinct form of energy and a contemporary commitment to um, social justice issues uh, and attentiveness 
to the uh, to the importance of, of workplace justice and, and institutions like uh, the labor movement as being important uh, to their uh, to their work. Um, I think they're you know I think they're also uh, tapping into uh, a, a belief that you know the economy is creating jobs like the ones that baristas have, uh, and and these are individuals who build relationships with with customers. Um, they again, they have a particular brand and cultural identity, mm-hmm. uh, and these workers uh, are sharing similar conditions, sim- similar experiences that occurred working uh, through a, a pandemic, being taken uh, essentially advantage of. Not, I, I don't think, high, being highly regarded by this incredibly profitable company that, like Amazon uh, and like the General Motors and the U.S. Steels of old, are willing. Uh, as, as Dr. Burke was mentioning, willing to spend large sums of money uh, to try to keep them from unionizing. Yeah. Uh, and yet they're, they're punching through, and I expect them to continue to rack up win after win after win. Now, whether or not how easy it will be to negotiate a, a collective bargaining agreement, uh, that's always a challenge yeah. um, because there are advantages that the employer has. It is pretty remarkable to watch, and the energy is just is, is electric. Sticking with you for a moment, Professor Bruno, the labor organizer that we just spoke with, Michael Mueller from Starbucks, he described a shift going on where essential workers are, are treated less like unskilled laborers, which is the term he used, and, and more like essential workers. How has the pandemic changed workers' power. Talk more about that. Yeah, and um, Professor Brooke was also uh, relating uh, to it, uh, implying that there's been a momentary uh, a change. Uh, I mean, clearly there, is, there are labor shortages um, that uh, are, uh, are, are helping workers to be more selective about where they're willing to work. I, I think, the, uh, to sum it up, the, what the pandemic did was it allowed workers to um, rethink, reconceptualize, uh, if you will, raise their consciousness about what is an acceptable job, defining what a quality job is. In fact, across the country, there are discussions, there are debates. The Department of Labor has a major initiative in an attempt to define a quality job. At the University of Illinois, we're part of work that's happening here to create an employment quality index, not just a job, but a quality job. And where pre-pandemic workers, I think, were, they never probably were comfortable with not having a voice on the job, not having enough safety, not having enough respect, not having enough say. Uh, But they had grown accustomed to doing the best that they could with what they have. I think right now there is a higher level of working class consciousness that's unfolding from auto workers down to uh, baristas, and the, the economic conditions are such that workers can assert a little more power um, uh, and voice. Yeah. Professor Berg, connect this to our listeners here. Talk about the kind of impact that waves of unionization like this will have on the economy and on folks like us who don't work at Amazon or Starbucks, but we might be their customers. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the increase in efforts to unionize can create momentum that spill over into other sectors that that may not unionize and create for employers pressure to match some of the benefits unions negotiate. And we've seen that over decades and decades in the 20th century, too. And it could be that we're in that cycle right now. 
that some of these victories, while they may even just be your local Starbucks shop, that creates a precedent. It creates a bar that other companies will look to and could emulate. And so this is a way that unions can essentially have an effect beyond simply their bargaining unit or who's covered under the contract. I think the, you know, uh, Professor Bruno said something about the concern of social justice. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that characterizes this moment is this linking for the minds of lots of workers of unions, social justice, civil rights, and they're linked together, worker rights with social rights. And that is a difference that we've seen in decades prior. And I think a new generation of workers really embrace that point of view. And we see that in why unions remain in Gallup surveys to be somewhat popular, way above the rate at which people will be able to organize or people are union members or covered under contracts. So that in some ways, unions are seen as a way to bring about more social justice through worker rights. So that is that, that's a new moment and an inflection point that we could see uh, carry forward. Yeah, to your point, one Gallup poll shows uh, 68% of the public support uh, of the public uh, support unions. Uh, that's the highest rate since the 60s. And what, what's really interesting about that is the experience that most people have with unions is very limited. You're only talking about 11% of the of the uh, labor force is covered under a union contract. In the private sector, it's 7%. So the the impression of unions has to do, I think, more with you know what they see as unions doing, not necessarily what they experience uniquely for themselves. Yeah. And so the, they see unions as this vehicle as an institution that can be helpful. So we are in this this moment when the vast majority of wealth is concentrated uh, kind of among just a few individuals and a, a few corporations are building monopolies across sectors. I'm namely thinking of Elon Musk, who we just learned earlier this week on Monday is going to add Twitter to his growing list of, of properties. So how does this moment compare, Professor Bruno, to a century ago when unions kind of first gained power as, as companies monopolized? Well, the, you know, what we've got now are modern-day robber barons. Uh, we've got an enormous amount of uh, income inequality. It's a shockingly small percentage uh, of people who uh, own uh, the largest uh, percentage of, of, of wealth. There's enormous concentration by firms in, uh, in, in multiple industries, not unlike the kind of uh, really sort of craven uh, inequality and exploitation that we saw um, 100 years ago. And it's those kinds of material conditions uh, which will compel, uh, which will uh, inspire workers to look for uh, look for avenues of of, of protection, um, and uh, when they find institutions that that function effectively yeah. uh, and are representative of them, they they will join them, they will support them, and they will be inspired to withhold uh, their labor. And it's historically has led to increases not only in unionization but in a, a broader uh, social equality. Uh, uh, in society. A quick final thought from each of you before we go. Uh, are workers at a turning point 
in this country. You first, Professor Bruno. It, well, it certainly feels uh, like like it's one, uh, and and it, you know we'll measure it over time in terms of how dramatic um, it will be, whether they can take advantage of it, whether there can be changes in the law uh, that will be supportive. But I do think we have to. It, it's a long game. Um, sometimes it's small incremental steps. Sometimes it's burst. Uh, but this one looks certainly more promising uh, than what we've seen over the last. 40 years. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm optimistic that, that something uh, positive, in fact, has, has developed that'll have some staying power. I'll give you the last word, Professor Berg. Um, I would say something is happening. We won't know what it is until we look back on it, but it's clearly something is happening at this moment. I would say that one thing we really need is, and, and Professor Bruno alluded to this, new labor legislation. We're operating under models that were written in the 1930s and how we organize and give people a voice and a say in the workplace. And it's a model that is unlike anything else in the world. Um, And it is not suited to today's economy of smaller workplaces, more hybrid work. And we need to look at modernizing the way we give people voice in the workplace. That's Professor Peter Berg, director of the School of Human Resources and Labor Relations at Michigan State University, and Professor Bob Bruno, who's director of the Labor Education Program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Thank you both. That's all for today's Reset Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating. It helps other listeners just like you find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll have a new episode for you tomorrow right here on your feed.